Welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. When I was a kid, seven, eight, nine, ten, my mom loved romance novels. Uh, I, I have to admit, I've never read one myself, but my mom was obsessed with them. She would fly through these books one every couple of weeks. So when I was introduced to Rachel Spangler, who writes women who love women romance novels, I was intrigued. She's written a bunch in and around sports and specifically tied to the Olympic Games. Uh, a couple years ago, she wrote a couple of them tied to the Winter Olympics, and she's written one called Thrust ahead of the Tokyo Summer Olympic Games that focuses on an Olympic fencer and a coach. It when I read about it, it made me think of The Front Runner and Patricia Nell Warren's seminal piece from, oh gosh, 40 plus years ago. And I was eager to talk to Rachel about her experiences in and around fencing and curling and all these other sports that she's writing about and her love for the Olympic Games and why she's focused on tying some of these releases of her books to the Olympic Games. Uh, I, I, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rachel Spangler. Rachel, I'm so curious. You have written about so many different sports. What is your process of diving into these sports every time, and particularly a sport like fencing that I know you've mentioned you've never done before? Yeah, I mean, the hope with fencing was that I would get to try it. And honestly, that was one of the big draws for me because swords are awesome. Um, but the pandemic was going on and I think we all had hoped that it would be over a lot sooner than it was. Um, and that will go down as history as something a lot of us misjudged. But I really believed when I started writing this book that I would get to try fencing and I did not. So um, we were on lockdown the entire time that I wrote this book. So I got to find some alternate ways. And one of the ways was just starting to reach out to Olympians. I just looked at the lists of who were Olympic female fencers from the United States over the last 20 years then who of them were on social media in ways that were open to the public. And I had my list and I started going down it. I started sending DMs to people saying, hi, I know you don't know me. This is probably gonna sound crazy, but I'm, I'm a romance novelist and this is what I'm trying to do. And would you be interested in helping with that? And so one of the things I have found with all of my sports novels is that people like to talk about things that they're good at. Um, and I, lo and behold, I heard back from two fencers almost immediately. Eliza Stone, who is a current Olympic fencer hoping to compete in Tokyo, and Iris Zimmerman, who um, was on our Olympic team in 2004, I believe. And she's actually running a club in Rochester, which isn't too far from me. So both of them jumped on board wholeheartedly and spent time on the phone and email, not just telling me about the rules of their sport, which I could, you know, Google, but really helping me understand the drive and the culture around their sports that I would never have access to on my own. 
as you talked with them, what did you learn about the fencing culture? Because obviously in the United States, it's not a lot of people who fence. Uh, I think probably a lot of Americans don't even know what it is. What did you learn about their culture? Yeah, so that is one big thing, right? It is a largely unknown sport. It's something that people generally have an idea of, oh, that's sword fighting. Um, but beyond that, they're constantly explaining their sport to people, which was lucky for me because it meant they're very good at it. They have a lot of practice, but um, they're not making money. I will tell you that. I also wrote a book about curling. So I, I kind of knew that that was the case going in. A great many Olympic athletes are in a large pit of debt. Um, and that can be true, certainly of fencers as well. So they're doing this out of love. They're doing this for pure passion. They are not getting famous. They are not making money. A lot of them have a real uphill climb to even support going to their tournaments. They are, however, incredibly smart. The fencers that I talk to, many of them have Ivy League backgrounds. Uh, a lot of them are going to med school or law school. A lot of them are working in fields where truly brilliant people gather. Um, and because of that, many of them talk much more about the mental aspects of the sport. They, they really think of it as a physical form of chess, which surprised me. They're much more interested in breaking down the mental aspects than the physical. Imagine with a sport like fencing, there has to be, um, there probably attracts uh, people who's, you know, have, whose families can afford to, you know, put them in these expensive schools and have them train, you know, like when you look at sports like sailing and ice hockey, where equipment is just, just expensive. Did you find that, that this is, you know, upper middle class people or is, is, is that part of the culture as well? It is not actually as much as I would have thought. Certainly it's there. It's absolutely there. They're not a lot of truly poor people playing the sport. Um, but I saw interviews with parents um, who were a little bewildered that their kids had ended up in these sports. Um, I, I saw an interview with one fencer whose family was homeschooled. They were struggling to keep their kids from strangling each other at home all day. And so they just took them to a gym looking for something for them to do and found that fencing classes were being taught, you know, at like the local YMCA. But then, yeah, that changes very quickly. The, I, I saw one interview where one of the top fencers in the country, his parents had to teach him how to navigate airports at a very young age because the travel is extensive and they could not afford to travel with him. So he was like, you know, 13 rolling through the airport with his fencing bag behind him on his own. Um, so yeah, certainly families have to make these hard choices around it. The thrust is about you know, a woman falling in love with another woman uh, in the world of fencing as you talked to these folks, did they talk about uh, an, an LGBTQ component to the culture of the sport? Yeah, so they, 
neither one of the women that I talked to um, identify as queer, but that was always, it's always one of the first questions I ask in my research is, you know, how would this be taken in your community? Um, and they were both really quick to say it was not uncommon. Um, one of them had had a coach who was out. Um, others had, you know, friends or teammates in college who, you know, were out or at least, you know, not very in. And they, they said it was not uncommon for, you know, that to be pretty well acknowledged in their community. Um, and again, they said this is a highly educated community. These people are smart. They have traveled. They've been in, you know, really diverse crowds. So this was just seen as one more aspect of that. Talk to me about Thrust. What? Tell us about the story that you, you've crafted here. Yeah, so this story is a really, you know, standard, we call it traditional contemporary romance in that it's it's a love story. The love story drives the plot within this world of fencing. Um, but the fencing is so intertwined in that the two main characters meet on their high school team. One of them is, is younger. She's a bit of a prodigy. Um, and she wants, she falls in love with the older woman there. Um, but because of the age gap, the older woman is like, no, you're 14, this is not gonna happen. Um, and she says, come back and find me when you're an Olympian. I'd, I'd kind of like to see that. And lo and behold, when the book picks up 10 years later, she is an Olympian and she has come back for her. So that is the, the first chapter is Jess has just made the Olympic teams and she shows up back in Buffalo to see Lauren who is running the old fencing club. And Lauren is completely shocked by this, but agrees to go out to dinner with her sort of out of curiosity of who has this woman become. Um, and over the course of dinner, they realize that the romance, that the attraction is there, but also something deeper uh, in that their training methods and their value sets could be exactly what Jess needs in the lead up to the Olympics. Um, so Lauren agrees to coach Jess for a few months on the condition that it's just about coaching, that they don't cross those lines. Um, and that becomes the conflict of the book is this, this coaching relationship, this pressure cooker of the Olympics, but also this profound attraction that's simmering all around them. Writing a romance novel, yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about writing about a relationship where they've agreed not to be romantic, but you're writing a romance novel. How do you navigate the dynamic of the relationship with the expectations for the reader that we're going to see some romance here? Yeah, so I mean, that's the thing. It's a, it's definitely a genre that people know that you you know what happens in a romance. the The thing that makes people keep reading romance is figuring out how do you navigate that. What what is about to happen here? Um, and that's the that's honestly the fun. That's the fun of a romance novel at writing it or reading it. But they, you know, we all know the the idea that the moment you stop looking for love or the moment you say you're not going to look for love is the moment it lands in your lap, right? That's a trope in our society. Um, and 
this idea of this these boundaries being set is often i mean human beings love to push boundaries right there's something fundamental in us that loves to see that happen so it is it's a constant back and forth between the olympics are in three months can't we keep it together until then and ultimately you know the answer being no no we can't um and and what does that do to a training relationship what does that do to motivations what does that do in the biggest moments of your life um it, it's it's a pressure cooker on all fronts and that's i hope what makes it really fun for people but we always say in a in writing a romance at the end of each scene, you're supposed to ask yourself, why can't these people be together right now? And if you don't have a good answer for that, your book is over. The book is ended. Um, so the, the fun work of a romance writer is to find legitimate reasons to keep them apart, even though you know we know, and maybe even they know, that they're meant to be together. The first LGBTQ themed uh, novel to land on the New York Times bestseller list, and it, as far as I know, remains today the best-selling LGBTQ novel of all time, is is the front runner. I mentioned it to you uh, in an email uh, by a woman named Patricia Nell Warren. She wrote it in 1974. It is about a runner and a running coach. <laughs> who realize that uh, together they can get this kid to the Olympics and they fall in love. The one of the, in 1974, the place where the, the novel ended up was, was catastrophic. It has a catastrophic ending. Um, and, and for years, people have complained that uh, LGBTQ love stories why is it the ones that make it to the big screen or the ones that make it to publication are, are always the ones that end in disaster? Do you have a pressure as a writer to make sure that there's a happy ending? And do you play sometimes with disaster endings? Yeah, so the Romance Writers of America, which has become a really problematic organization, but they were our governing body for a long time and they defined a romance as having a central love story and an emotionally satisfying and optimistic end. So in my genre, if I don't have an emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending, I have not written a romance. I have written a tragedy or I've written something else, but it cannot be a romance if it does not have that emotionally satisfying and optimistic end. So it leaves a little bit of wiggle room right there. It's not, it doesn't say happily ever after, right? Um, so I will sometimes play with not all things being resolved. Sometimes the resolution can just be that we resolve to face this together, right? We, we've still got some conflict around us. We still don't know all of the answers, but for the main couple, they, have committed to facing whatever comes next together. Um, so that's the bare minimum for me. I will not do anything beyond that. Um, I would lose my readership, quite frankly, um, pretty quickly. But yeah, that does also mean that I know that my stuff will probably never hit the big screen, no matter how popular it is. Um, my 
my last sporting novel, Fire and Ice, did get reviewed by the New York Times, which was really nice. But, you know, no agents have called for the movie rights yet because the <laughs> barrier gaze trope is still really, really common in our culture. Well, it is getting better. You know, it, I, I think it, it is changing. I think there's been a lot of pressure from LGBTQ organizations and, and readers and viewers to stop with the tragedies. Uh, and so it's been nice over the last 10 years. I mean, obviously, the, the, the Brokeback Mountain, um, uh, you know, obviously was a tragedy that caught tons of attention 15 years ago. But it has been nice to see there be some change on TV to have, you know, um, gay and lesbian romances actually work out, you know, in TV series. So it has changed, but it, it, it is, you know, when I'm writing, uh, I'm, I'm always looking to find um, a way to turn it into what you said, optimistic is such a, that's such a great term. Um, and I imagine that writing those are, are, are more satisfying for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, we were, I was just on a walk with my wife this morning and we were talking about, you know, that real life is super hard. It's always hard, but it's especially right now that I wrote thrust in the lead up to the last election in the middle of a global pandemic. And, you know, you're watching the horror of, you know, police shootings and people dying in mass. And there's just so much of that around. I want to be someone who makes people feel hopeful. I want to be someone who helps put things in the world that give us an opportunity to see ourselves thriving. That's, that's why I'm writing queer fiction. I want to, you know, offer some mild roadmap toward queer happiness, queer joy. You've written 18 romance novels. How did you get started? <laughs> Actually, I wrote my first one when I was in college. It was largely because the local Barnes and Noble had, you know, six lesbian romances on the shelf and I had read them all. This was you know, largely before you, you could really buy a lot of books online. Um, so they were out there, they were being published, but they were really hard for me to find in central Illinois at that time. So when I was sitting in my classes, bored, you know, taking my geology lab, I was scribbling notes in the back and I just started writing stories to entertain myself. And it was only after a friend found some of them sitting on my end table that she said, you need to send this in. This is really good. Um, and after a few months of her kind of pestering me about that, I did. And it got published. That, that little project to entertain me in the back of my lecture hall became my first book. How did, what, what is your sports background? <laughs> I have tried a great many sports and have not been what anyone would consider successful at most of them. Um, I, my family is a big sporting family. My dad was a baseball player and a football player. My brother played hockey. Um, I was not great at sports. So I played a little bit of little league and then really nothing else through, through school, through college. I didn't do anything until 
we started to ski. My wife and I started to ski when we, we moved to the cold weather climate. Um, and that became a passion for both of us. So the winter sports, we're, we're living outside of Buffalo now. So the winter sports kind of took off for us as adults. And we ski. My son has recently taken up snowboarding. We also curl, which is something most of the country doesn't have an opportunity to do. Um, but we're on a curling team in Buffalo. So that's, that's really the extent of most of mine. Um, I do have a book about a tennis player, and that is because my son is a tennis player. So I've, I'm sort of getting this secondary crack at sports as a parent, which is different and wonderful all at once. I don't have to put myself out there, but I get to enjoy this sort of vicarious sports culture that, that we're really falling in love with with tennis as well. Do you find part of yourself maybe not pushing your son to sports, but nudging him? You know, you hear from so many parents that, you know, oh, yes, it's, it's, it's kind of this a subconscious second chance to be a sports star. Do you, is, there, is that in you somewhere? I don't know. It, it's interesting. I wouldn't have thought so. It, it's possible, but he is much more the athlete um, he's got my father's athleticism that he can pick up any sport and just run with it. So my wife and I found it amusing that he picked up a sport that neither of us played. He kind of found his own road into tennis. Um, and we knew nothing really about the tennis world. We still occasionally will make a faux pas and clap at something we're not supposed to clap at. Um, because we don't know the rules. So I think it's much more just amusement and a little bit of befuddlement that he has found this path and is succeeding on it really despite our lack of knowledge. Do, do you go to all of his tennis matches now? Do you find yourself watching uh, the, the Grand Slams? Yeah, yeah, actually, you know, in sort of our, <laughs> our not understanding things. So we live in New York State. And a couple years ago, you know, we love to travel, we always go to baseball games. And a couple years ago, he said, Mom, I, I really want to go to a big tennis tournament. And we were like, Yeah, sure, cool. We'll just get tickets to the US Open. And he was like, you will? And we we're like, Yeah, that's fun. That'll be fun. And then we like, belatedly realized what we had stepped into but <laughs> it's actually really hard to get tickets to the u.s open um and it's expensive yeah. but we had already we had already sort of committed ourselves to that um and we went and we had a blast like we didn't get tickets into the big stadiums we didn't see anybody major um but we we sort of found ourselves in this situation where not knowing anything that that we were getting into we enjoyed ourselves tremendously um and then when we were living in england a couple years ago for my wife's sabbatical we ended up doing the same thing we camped out to get tickets to wimbledon oh wow um and it was this whole experience we were in line for 28 hours <laughs> um at least we had done our research we knew what we were in for there but it, it has ended up being this sort of fandom, you know, I'm in my mid thirties and I'm becoming a fan of something new, something brand new, which is exciting. And it makes you feel young in ways that, you know, you don't feel excited about 
a lot of other new things you have to learn as an adult. But this has been, it's been really energizing. Looking ahead to the Tokyo Games this summer, I'm sure you are now going to be watching more fencing than you may have otherwise. Are there any other athletes or sports that you're most interested in watching or that, that you have a real connection to? You know, I can get into just about any sport. Um, I, baseball and softball are coming back, which, you know, we're, we're a big baseball family. So I'm excited about that tremendously. I am excited about the fencing because I've never watched it particularly before, but now I have this woman that I talk to, you know, that I've been on the phone with who's going to be competing. Um, we also had an Olympian. We live in a really tiny town, um, but Jin Sher, who is an Olympic pole vaulter, um, is from the town. So over the last two Olympics, we've really got into pole vaulting. So, which is another totally random thing to be excited about. Um, but now we kind of are excited to watch that as well. How can people find Thrust? So Thrust is in typeset right now, which means that it is going to appear on all of the pre-order sites probably within the next two weeks. So we're, we will expect it to be on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It will also be um, available through Bella Books, which if you want to help a queer company, Bella Books is the largest distributor of queer women's fiction. So if you, you know, www.bellabooks.com, I believe. Um, so if you want to buy directly from a queer publisher, that's where you'll go. Well, great. Appreciate your time. I'm I'm excited to read it. I've never I've never read uh, I've never read a romance novel. Period. Read, <laughs> about between two women. So uh, I, I I look forward to, to taking a look. Awesome. Thank you, and thanks for having me. You can find Rachel Spangler on Twitter at Rachel Spangler. She's also at rachelspangler.com. The Thrust comes out in a few weeks. We will have links to where you can track that book down on Outsports and across social media when that comes out. And I really appreciate Rachel joining me. Uh, I, I just love hearing how different writers approach sports and really diving into how, you know, how to really sub, uh, submerse the reader in the sport without ever having participated in the sport. You know, uh, journalists and writers are, you know what, frankly, we're amazing people. We, we have an ability to um, listen that I think, you know, people focus on our writing all the time. It is really is listening that makes a good writer as well as obviously crafting a good story. But really appreciate Rachel joining me this week and I hope you'll come back next week for another conversation about LGBTQ people in and around the Olympic Games. Have a great week. <laughs>